Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you struggle to frame your thoughts in meetings? Or do you avoid having to speak up? Or do you dread when you need to speak up? Or do you dread speaking in public? Well, if any of those are true for you, then we have the answer for you today. So today we're focusing on the tricks, the tactics, the exercises for one, managing the anxiety that comes when you have to speak up, for what to do when your mind goes blank and you can't think of what you're about to say, or for you have to figure out what you're going to say in the moment and it needs to be more spontaneous. And by the way, if you're managing somebody who needs to speak up, you're going to get an awful lot of advice about how to help them develop this skill. So my guest today is Matt Abrams. Matt's a leading expert in communication with decades of experience as an educator, author, podcast host, and coach. He's a lecturer in organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. And he teaches there, as you'll hear today, a very popular course on strategic communication and effective virtual presenting. Don't we all need that? He hosts a popular award-winning podcast, not nearly as popular as mine. Oh, well, okay. Called Think Fast, Think Smart, the podcast. And he's the author of a book I really like, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. I should say his previous book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, 50 Techniques for Confident and Compelling Presentation is also pretty useful and it's helped thousands of people speak without anxiety and with more confidence and authenticity. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda, for having me. I'm really excited to have our conversation and I'm glad your podcast is successful. (laughs) I'm glad yours is as well. It's fantastic. Isn't this a great gig doing podcasts along with all I love it. I love it. Um. So I always like to start with why. Why are you so passionate about helping people deal with the anxiety and learn to speak up? What's the driving force there? So many times in my life as a teacher and when I was in the corporate world, I saw people who had great ideas and and really visionary thoughts about where companies could go, where, where certain things they were really passionate about could go, and they just could not communicate them well, they couldn't get their point across. And, and in the corporate world in particular, I saw so many people advance in their careers, not because they were the best or the brightest, but because they could communicate well. And, and I believe we as a society, we as a world function best when people who have important things to say feel comfortable sharing them. And, and that's something that's driven me for many, many years in the work that I do. I I, mean, I echo how big of a problem it is. Um, I talk to tons of folks where the tragedy is on the company's part because they had an idea that they couldn't get across. They felt a little embarrassed about how it had gone. They end up leaving the company, going off to do something else somewhere else. And then four years later, the company goes, oh, wait a minute. We need to do that thing that we just passed on and didn't understand. Or how many people from other countries or other cultures struggle to get to feel confident? I mean, I just think it's a huge problem. So I echo that with you. I'll not give my own speech about it. Um, As you describe in the book, so many people get anxious. 
about having to speak up, about what they're going to say, about how they're going to say it. And there's a ton of examples, you know, whether it's small talk at a meeting or at a networking event, or it's, um, you know, somebody asks a question and they're not quite prepared for it, or there's a certain turn of events and they're asked to give an opinion, or it's public speaking and they just struggle. So one, why do people struggle so much? And then two, how do we deal with the anxiety? Oh, so so the second part is a big a big question. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to give a, a clear and concise answer. So many of us struggle with anxiety. Most people do. In fact, eighty five percent, up to eighty five percent of people report feeling nervous in high stakes communication situations, be they planned or spontaneous. And I think the other 15% are lying, quite frankly. I think we could create a situation that makes them nervous too. The the underlying reason that those of us who study this believe is that when we communicate in high stakes situations, we are putting our status at risk. Our status is not who drives the fanciest car, who has the most likes on social media or listeners on their podcast. It's mostly about where you sit in the social hierarchy. And as our species was evolving, if you were low in the social hierarchy, your life was fraught with trouble. It, you, you risked uh, having access to food, shelter, reproduction. We have innate to being human, this desire to make sure that we don't risk things that could put us in harm's way. And speaking in front of others does that. That's why a lot of the symptoms that we feel are exactly the same symptoms we feel when we're under threat in other ways, that fight or flight response. So how do we manage this? And we can manage it. We can learn to be co more comfortable with it. We have to take a two-pronged approach. We have to manage both symptoms and sources. Symptoms are the things that we physiologically and mentally experience, and sources are the things that initiate and exacerbate, make it worse. So let me give you a quick example of each. Okay. When it comes to symptomatic relief, perhaps the most important thing you can do is to take some deep, slow belly breaths. The kind you would do if you've ever done yoga or Tai Chi, where you really fill your lower abdomen. And what's interesting, and I didn't know this, Wanda, until a few years ago, it's the exhale that's more important than the inhale. So you want your exhale to be twice as long as the inhale. And if you do this type of breathing just two or three times, it slows down a lot of that physiological anxiety we feel. Now, a source is something that initiates and continues our anxiety. And one that many of us carry around is the goal that we're trying to achieve. Whenever you communicate, you have goals and we can be made nervous by the goals that we have, like we're not going to achieve them. My students are afraid they're not going to get a good grade. You might be afraid you're not going to get support for a project you have. So by definition, a goal is a future state. And so we can short circuit that by being in the present moment. So do something physical, a little light activity, walk around the building, speak with your audience before you get up on stage. Uh, it could be listening to a song or a playlist like uh, an athlete does. You can start at 100 and count backwards by 17s. That will get you very pre present or in anything challenging like that. So it's innate to being human. That's why we're nervous. There are things we can do to manage both symptoms as well as sources to help us feel better. Long-winded answer, but a complex question for sure. Yeah, and I think a lot more buried underneath that than you've given us a clue about thus far. Um, I, like you, did not know that it was the exhale that mm -hmm. reduces the symptoms. Because when you say to most people, take a deep breath, yeah. they take a deep inhale, hold it, and, yeah, then and then sort of exhale, but they're still holding it. And that ramps up stress. 
So it's a practice to learn to deep exhale and a little bit of air. So, you know, yeah, totally. And that's something you can do in the moment and do silently in the moment too. We don't want to go and be virtual. Just click the mute button, do it. And nobody knows you're doing it. Nobody's knowing it. That's right. Um, So that's one way of dealing with the symptoms. I want to hear some others, but I think it's interesting about the sources and especially in modern organizations, when I'm trying to raise my profile because I want a promotion or I want an opportunity or I want, you know, to get an idea sold, we don't have an awful lot of those. So there's this scarcity mentality that I have one shot in front of a senior executive. And if that's how you're thinking, that's, I mean, it's going to stress you. So how do you change that side of the goal part? Yeah. So when it comes to communication, be it planned or spontaneous, we have this deep pressure we put on ourselves to do it right, to get it done in the moment the best way we can. And you're right. There are circumstances and situations that don't come up very often. And it's a big deal, like the one opportunity to interview for the one position that comes along every once in a while. Uh, There's a lot of pressure in there. What helps people is to reframe these circumstances, not as something that I have to do it right, but to really focus on connecting, being present, and being able to adjust and adapt to what is being presented to you. If I am constantly in my head saying, I've got to do this right, this is my only opportunity, this is my only chance, I literally have less cognitive bandwidth to focus on what I'm actually doing or saying. So we need to turn that volume down, that volume of that voice that keeps saying, do it right, this is the only opportunity we have. We need to actually get focused, get present, and in that, that will help. I, this saying came uh, in an interview I did with Joan London. I, I interviewed her uh, for the book. And she said, you know, Matt, what it really boils down to is it's all about connection and not perfection. And I love that saying. And even in those moments where it is make or break, if you focus on connecting, listening and being present, you are much more likely to do better. Okay. Great quote. Connection, not perfection. Uh And I often say to people, how many times have you heard somebody else say something not so smart in a meeting? So it didn't kill them. It's not going to kill you. But when you take a high achieving uh, individual, like let's say you're Stanford students, for example, (laughs) yes, getting letting go of that perfection and that belief in the need to strive for perfection is a hard thing. So is it just as simple as reframing to connection or do you have some other advice about how we can let go of the perfection piece? Well, I think part of it is realizing that that perfection is is a a false goal. There is no perfection when it comes to speaking. Uh, You can always do things differently, sometimes better, sometimes worse. So giving yourself permission to see things less, not binary, not it's either perfect or it's not. And to realize that the true benefit of communication comes in collaborating and connecting. It's not just relaying information. Uh, There are lots of examples of people who just spewed out information but didn't have it land well. So giving students an opportunity in my class to practice this where they actually see the benefit of listening, connecting, adjusting, and adapting. That's how change happens. You can understand it intellectually, but until you do it, it's all, that's the only place you really begin to see the, the benefit. And you don't actually have to do it yourself. You can see it in others. So I challenge everybody, 
begin to observe your coworkers, your colleagues, your friends, who you deem to be really good communicators and notice what they're doing. And I will bet in the vast majority of cases, they are connecting, they are adjusting to what's needed, they are making their content relevant. None of that is about saying the right word exactly the right way at exactly the right time. So it is that experiential learning, either through observation or personal practice, that I think really moves the needle on this. There's um, a senior leader in finance who says one of his frustrations going out to make a call with a major potential client um, in a sales role and people come with a script of what they've rehearsed and put weeks together and, you know, the book that they're going to present and blah, blah, blah. He says, I want people to throw that book out before we walk in the room because it needs to start with a question to the client what's mm-hmm. on your mind and a lot of listening and what have you thought about and so on and being able to dance with whatever the client is saying. And he says, 90% of the time, you're going to get back around to what you planned anyway, but you never want to lead with it. I think that's consistent with what you're saying. There is so much gold in what you just shared, Wanda. Uh, I want to highlight a few things you said. Yeah. One, you do have to prepare to be spontaneous. And that sounds a little counterintuitive. But if you think of athletes or jazz musicians, they practice and prepare a lot. And then what they do in the moment is spontaneous. So that notion of thinking through what you want to say makes a lot of sense. But I totally agree. Put it aside. Be present and adjust in the moment. And that that analogy you used of a dance, I think is great. In dancing, you have to respond to what your partner does, to what the music does. You might have some moves, I certainly do not, but that uh, analogy of dancing, I think is really, really uh, important. So lots of goodness in what you said. And yes, I absolutely agree. Yeah. All right. I have one more that I want to get your reaction to. This was mine. I was giving a talk last week. I happened Uh to be in London to a group, a younger group, Uh and I noticed I'd lost their attention. Mm. I lost their attention. Like you can just, you just feel it. They're not looking at you anymore. And the attention span is such a short thing these days. And so I borrowed a trick from somebody who's brilliant at this that I had seen. And I just completely pivoted and said, so let me tell you a story. And I went off on a story and then wound that back around to a point. But immediately I got their attention. Absolutely. So storytelling is really, really powerful. First, I, I want to compliment you on noticing that the audience wasn't engaged or as engaged and then adjusting immediately. Many of us are so hell-bent on getting through our content. I'm going to get from A to Z regardless of what happens that we we don't care if the audience is actually absorbing or engaged with what we say. So it's wonderful that you noticed a change and you immediately adjusted. And storytelling is a very powerful way. There are many different ways to engage an audience. Storytelling is perhaps one of the most powerful. In writing the new book and in the work that I've done prior, I've interviewed lots of neuroscientists and they say that our brain is wired for story. Uh, We are not built to take lists and itemization of things. It's really in story. So one of the things you can do is as you are communicating, be observant and see are people responding? Are they not responding? Is, Is the engagement level changing? And then having thought through in advance, what are some stories you could tell that might be relevant to this audience? I think it's totally acceptable to stockpile some ideas, maybe stories, maybe analogies, maybe some activities that you can pull in if needed in the moment. 
So I, I think it's great. And, and I'm curious, Wanda, did the story help in reinvigorate the audience oh, and get them engaged? Absolutely, totally. I mean, people went from looking down to looking right up, you know, and instantly engaged. And you've got to be prepared to tell that in a quick way, but it worked. It absolutely, totally worked. Um, anyway, Wonderful. and I agree with you. People remember the stories. They don't remember much of anything else that I say, at least. Maybe that says more about me, but they remember the no, stories. No, no, no. It's true. People remember stories more than they remember facts and, and lists of things, yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right. So let me take this back. There's in managing anxiety, first off, most of us feel it when it's a high stakes issue. Mm-hmm. So their yeah. status, our reputation, if you will, our personal mm-hmm. brand, our opportunities are all feel like they're on the line. And especially when we don't feel like we get many times to come back around on that one, it's going to feel even more so. There's managing the source of anxiety, which is the stress reaction in the body. And you said slow belly breaths. I love that. So focus on the exhale. And then you said the goals. And the goals are about a future state. And the secret is to not be on the future state, but in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So letting go of perfection, not thinking about this as just a one shot and being able to adapt and flex in the moment with where the audience is. Okay. Wonderful summary of what I said. That's great. Fantastic. Is there anything you want to, that you should add to that in terms of either the source or managing um, the, the, the symptoms? Uh, yeah. symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me give you one more for each. So many of us, when we get in these anxiety states, we get hotter. Uh, we have a lot of these physiological responses. Uh, your heart's beating faster. Your body's tensing up. Your blood pressure goes up. It's like you're exercising. So we blush and we perspire. A great way to address that is to simply hold something cold in the palms of your hand. The palms of your hand are thermoregulators for your body, just like your forehead. If you've ever been sick and had a fever and you Mm -hmm. put a cold compress on your forehead, palms of your hand work the same way. You know this on a cold morning, if you've ever held a warm cup of tea or coffee and felt it warm you up, we're just doing it in reverse. And by cooling yourself down, you blush less and you perspire less. So that's something you can do for another symptom. Another source of anxiety is we feel we are constantly being judged and evaluated. And we are. People are judging and evaluating us as a person and our ideas. If you make the mental shift, though, of not focusing on yourself and all the things that you're doing or not doing, and you actually focus on your audience and remind yourself that you have value to bring, you are in service of your audience, by taking that spotlight and shining it on the audience rather than yourself, you can actually reduce anxiety too. So many, many things we can do to manage symptoms and sources. All right, I'm going to stay with this last one for just a minute because, you know, out of the comfort zone, I am constantly talking to people about what are the steps for getting out of the comfort zone? How do you face those things that are, I don't know how to do and go on with them? And one of the ones um, I my fundamentally believe, and I watch it in practice, is that when you understand the value you bring to the situation, so I don't know everything, but I know something, I'm bringing some value that that's when you get comfortable being uncomfortable, okay? And you just said the same thing. When you're feeling judged, focus or fear that you're going to be judged, focus on the value that you're bringing, what you're giving of service to your audience. A perfect alignment there. It's great. Yes, absolutely. 
All right. Now, to stop the blush or the flush response or the uh, feeling overly heated and sweating and all of that, you said put something calm, cold in the palm of your hand. Yeah. How do I do that in practice? I'm going in to give a talk. Mm-hmm. Like, do I take a frozen, you know, stress ball? Or, I mean, what do I do? <laughs> no, a cold bottle of water. In fact, right before we started this conversation, I was holding a cold bottle of water. Um, not only did the water help get my saliva flowing, but uh, just by holding it in my hand. I don't recommend in the actual moment of speaking, you hold things. But yeah. right before, if you're sitting in a meeting room and you know your turn is coming up, holding something cold, it's it's relatively simple and benign and can make a big difference. Okay. I said there, when you blush, and blush is a little bit different, but this is the thing I question from all the time. Lots of people um, talk about that sense of the redness rising in my face. Mm-hmm. And then I get anxious about that. And yes. I've got a perfect cycle. So how do we deal with this blushing piece? Yeah, so so blushing it has to do with blood flow. And it's some of us have, uh, it shows more apparently than others. And yeah. by slowing down that breathing, by holding something cold and reducing your core body temperature, you slow down that blood flow that makes you look so red. Uh, and, and it takes time and practice. Now, what's also important concurrent with that we have to be changing our mindset because what happens is we have to break that cycle of I'm turning red. Oh my goodness. They're going to see me turn red. And now I'm turning more red because I'm more nervous. So put that energy again out into the audience. So when you begin to feel red one, you can reframe it and say, Oh, I'm really excited and ready to go. Right. That's my internal sign that I'm excited and ready to go. Uh, One of my friends and uh, a colleague, she works at uh, Harvard's business school. Uh, Her name is Allison Woods Brooks. She actually did some research a while back talking about reframing the physiological feelings we get when we're nervous about speaking in front of others as excitement rather than as anxiety can change the way we approach it can make us feel more confident and actually make us deliver better. So this could just be a sign. I'm excited when I when I feel that heart pounding and I turn red, I'm ready to go. And that breaks that cycle of I'm nervous, you're going to see me as nervous, and now I'm more nervous. So we can do a lot, I think, to deal with blushing, as well as all the other symptoms that we feel. Right, right. I know this sounds like to somebody who blushes and is worried about it, that it sounds crazy, but I can imagine... In many situations, you're presenting, you're getting a reaction, you feel yourself blushing. You could even say, you know, you can see that my heart is pounding because I'm so excited about this. You could even name it, I think, in the moment, and it wouldn't get a bad reaction. Um, I think people would would respond well to it. Okay. I agree. I agree. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Tons, and I will say in the book, thinking faster, thinking smarter. There are tons of exercises. I love your little try it sections in there. Oh, thank you. That give a one, two, three, four thing to do. And they're so practical, so easy. So highly recommended on that one. Thank you. All right. Um, let's talk about the next problem people have that creates great anxiety. And that is you're standing up to speak. It's a big moment and suddenly your mind goes blank. You can't remember what you were going to say or what your opening line is or uh, how do you recommend dealing with that one? Yes. So I'm going to give you two things to do in advance and two things to do during if it happens. Okay. So one of the, and by the way, this is the number one fear people report to me. I'm going to blank out. 
So this is a reasonable fear, but not necessarily a rational fear. Yeah. So one thing you can do in advance of speaking or a situation you know where you will need to speak, I invite you to do to ask yourself two simple questions. One is, what is the likelihood that I'm actually going to blank out in this upcoming communication? If you're like most people, realistically, if you really, really look deep inside yourself, you're going to say maybe 20, 25% chance at the most, which okay. means 75 to 80% of the time, you're not going to blank out. And if I were a betting person, I would take those odds. The second thing to ask yourself as part of this rationalization process is what is the worst thing that would happen for me and my audience if I did blank out? Well, you'd certainly feel awkward. It would potentially do some damage in the short term and long term to your reputation, your career, your credibility. But I always ask people, have you ever done something that embarrasses yourself, that makes you feel awkward and others around you feel awkward? And everybody, of course, says yes, and you've survived. So by going through that rationalization process, it actually reduces some of that anxiety that we feel about blanking out. And by reducing that anxiety, we make it less likely to happen. So step one is to go through a rationalization process. Step two, and I hope we talk about this some more later, is this notion of structure. We do not do well when we list information as we discussed. Stories have structure, beginning, middle, and end. And there are myriad structures you can use to prepare your content, be it planned or spontaneous. And a great example is problem, solution, benefit. Any sales or pitch that you've ever heard probably falls into this format. Talk about the problem or issue, how you're going to solve it, and then what the benefits are. That roadmap prevents me from blanking out. If I'm presenting and I go, oh, no, I don't know what to say next, I just have to remember that I just finished the problem and I know solution always follows it. So two things you can do in advance. One is rationalize, the other is to leverage structure. Now let's say the worst has happened. You blank out. First thing to do is like if you lose your keys or lose your phone, retrace your steps. Repeat yourself. Say what you just said. Most of us, even if we can't remember what we want to say next, we can remember what we just said, and that will often get us back on track. Okay. If repeating yourself doesn't work, then do what I do sometimes when I forget, is I ask my audience a question. I distract them just long enough to give myself time to think. So as a teacher, if you ever hear me say this and you're in one of my classes, you know that I've forgotten. So I might say something like, let's pause for a moment and I'd like for you to think about how what we've just covered can be applied in your life. And when my students hear that, they don't think, oh, Matt's forgotten. They think, wow, how could this apply? And while they're thinking, I'm thinking yeah. each of you could come up with something that you could come up with that could actually give you time while also keeping your audience engaged. I think that's my secret way to dealing with any question I'm not quite ready to answer. Well, what have you thought about? Or what have you seen? Or why are you asking that question? Or what's at the heart of this concern for you? I love it. Yeah. Any of those, because what it does is it buys me a minute to think. And by the way, it clues me into what it was they really meant by the question in the first place, which is often not what I was imagining. But that time when we're listening to people talk, we never have time to think. So the pause, I want you to have time to think, is a great thing to do. And so is saying it again. I mean, you may feel like an idiot, but your audience will thank you because it lets them, oh, right, I got that was important. I got that. All right, great. So one you said is in advance, just normalize that the world is not going to come to an end. 
Okay. It's unlikely to happen. And if it does, okay. And then two is the preparation I use and the structure I use, because that'll give me my roadblocks. We'll talk about that in a minute. But during is go back and repeat what you just said. As in, let me say that again to make sure you really understood it. Or as I was saying, you just keep going. Or two is to ask a question. Great tactics. And I think I agree with you. When people have a way to approach this, it takes the anxiety away from it, which makes it and less likely to happen. Blanking out less likely, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I always say to people, when you blank out, it's frequently because of a lack of oxygen in your brain. That you're holding your breath without thinking about it. So breathe, like focus again on that exhale. But do you have different evidence? I th- I think breathing and anything that brings people to breathing more is is super important. So I I I love that idea that in that moment, especially when you panic, like ah, oh, I don't know what to say. Taking a breath can help ground you and center you. And if you throw out a question to your audience, it even gives you more time to do that. Okay. I had one client say to me, I swear, Wanda, I think if I ever learn to breathe properly, I will solve every problem <laughs> because there's so much problem. Okay, Matt, this is a perfect place to take a break because we've dealt with the anxiety, the kind of basic problems that people has, what to deal with it, both the sources of the anxiety as well as the symptoms of the anxiety and the practical problems that come with that. So when we take when we come back from the break, I want to talk about this question about structure something you've already mentioned, given an example of, but I want to talk about the different kinds of structure. Again, a part of the book that I thought was really interesting. So my guest today is Matt Abrams, expert in communication, as you can can see, an educator, an author, and a podcast host. The podcast is called Think Fast, Think Smart. The podcast, I was joking earlier that it's not as successful as mine. It's brilliantly successful. Please check him out. And the book is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Um, And we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Matt Abrams. The book we're talking about is, get it right this time, um, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot, and his prior book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, 50 Techniques. Now, I'm not sure I've said Matt's podcast correctly because the title of the book and the title of the podcast are all right there and I'm trying to rush through it. But the podcast is Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. And Matt, while we're on this, if people wanted to reach you, where's the best place to reach you? Well, thank you. I'm not very creative with names, as you can see. The book and the podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, and then Think Faster, Talk Smarter. I think whatever comes next will have to be Think Fastest, Talk Smartest, and then I'm done. Uh, so the best place to reach me, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, go to mattabrahams.com and you'll see a whole bunch of resources that I have. Um, and listen into the podcast uh, as well. We have lots of followers across all the different platforms. Fabulous. All right. So we have been talking about anxiety, the anxiety that most human beings feel when they have to stand up to speak in public or when there's a high stakes interaction, like you step on the elevator and suddenly your boss's boss is there and you need to say something intelligent. Or even in a personal situation where you're introduced to a significant other's family, for example, and there's a need to have some small talk. I mean, there's tons of occasions where the anxiety is real. And there's symptoms from the anxiety and there's sources from the anxiety. We want to tackle both of them. So we've talked about some techniques for handling the sources and or symptoms and some techniques around the sources, as well as things like, what do you do when you flush and so on? And now I know I need a cold glass of water in my hand (laughs) on any occasion to kind of calm down the heart rate and the pounding and the nerves. All right, let's turn to something you said that I think is a really powerful piece. And that is structure. So why is structure so important? And this is a core part of what you do for prep. So why is it so important? Structure is critical to helping both ourselves formulate our messages and to help package it for our audience. Our brains are wired for structure. When structured information is presented to us, we process it much more fluently and effectively than just rambling or lists. When I'm referring to a structure, I'm talking about something that has a beginning, middle, and an end. Structure does at least three things for us. First, it sets expectations so people know what's coming. Second, it bridges ideas together so it connects them. And then finally, it helps remember. And it helps people remember the information, both us and our audience. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by structure. One that some of us are familiar with, I've already mentioned, problem, solution, benefit. Another structure is comparison, contrast, conclusion. You compare two ideas, you contrast them, and then you give your conclusion. In both of those examples, when you start your communication, planned or spontaneous, you can let people know. So if I'm advocating for something or selling something, I could say, today I'd like to talk about the problem of X, whatever that is, share how we can address it, and ultimately how we can benefit. So I give a bit of a preview so you know what's coming. If you don't know what's coming, you will often be very uncomfortable not not knowing where is this going. 
I liken communication to being a tour guide. And I was a tour guide many, many years ago on my college campus. And the single thing they taught us, they said to be a good tour guide, never lose your tour group. And the same thing is true with your communication. Never lose your audience, be it written or spoken. How does a good tour guide start every tour? By telling you where you're going. So you can pay attention to what you're enjoying rather than going, oh, are we going to go over there? Are we going to go over there? No, you know. So setting expectations structure does that. The place you lose people the most on a tour is when you physically move from one space to the next, that people just wander off. The same thing is true in your communication. If all you are saying is next, so, second, third, as transitions, you might lose your audience. But if you can bridge your audience by connecting what you've just said to what comes next, you keep them together. So transitions are built into structure. I can say, now that you understand the problem, how do we solve it? And then finally, as I mentioned, our brains are wired to store structure. So when I present to you something that's well-structured, you're likely to remember it. And that's really important, not only because you're more likely to act on it, but in many of our communications, it is all about taking what you've told me and then I have to share it with somebody else. Take a job interview, for example. Very rarely do you interview with the person who can hire you in the moment. Usually you're interviewed by somebody who then has to turn around and go talk to other people and advocate for you. If you package your information up in a way that's clear and concise, they are in a better position to sell you, to talk about you, than to try to remember everything you've rambled. So structure is so important for so many reasons. I'm going to add a piece to that one in a job interview, just a moment and a sidestep. Sure. It's also helpful if you use a similar structure with every single person, because then when they get together to compare, they have all heard the same story. And that makes you look like a consistent, honest, you know, well thought out person. I mean, I think that's true as well besides job interviews. All right. So structure, it helps the audience understand what's coming next. So what are we going to do? It helps me move from part A to part B to part C. It helps mm -hmm. me personally remember what's part A, what's part B, part C. Yeah, part C. Exactly. Um, I suspect it also means that when I need to respond in the moment, I can shorten part A and then spend more time on part B. But because I got the signpost, I know how to do that. And all of that helps people remember what your core message was in the first place. Okay, cool. Yeah. All Thanks. right. So you've given me two examples, but can you give me like, is there a favorite one? I mean, how many of these are there? Help me understand how to think about what structure I need. So there are many, many structures. And my advice to people is to find one or two that work really well for you. There are some general all-purpose structures, and then there are some very specific structures that tend to work for certain circumstances. And in the book, I have a whole second part of the book identify six very common communication situations where you have to speak in the moment. So it's giving feedback, answering questions, making small talk, apologizing, introducing yourself, et cetera. Those are very specific structures that can work for those circumstances. A more generic structure, which happens to be my favorite structure, is three simple questions. What? So what? Now what? The what is what it is you're talking about. It's your idea, your product, your belief, your position in something. The so what is why is it relevant or important to the person you're talking to? 
And then the now what is what comes next? Maybe it's, I'll take your questions. Let me show you a demonstration. Let's set up another meeting. So by simply answering what, so what, now what, you can help yourself in many situations. For example, if I am writing an email, my su my subject line is the, the now what, that's what I'd like you to do. And the body is the what in the so what. If I am giving you an update on a status of a project or something, the what is my update, the so what is why it's important, the now what is what comes next. So it's something we can use very readily in lots of circumstances. The way to get better at it is to practice. So I challenge everybody, when you are done reading something or listening to this podcast, stop and say, what was it about? Why is it important to me? And how can I use this information? And if you do that enough, this structure becomes second nature. So everything you do falls into this structure. Now I'm going to get meta with you just for a second, okay. Wanda. I just answered your question using what, so what, now what? I, the what was my answer. The so what is why it's important. And the now what was this example of how you can practice it. So okay. by doing the practice, you can use these structures very easily. This is one I see as universally applicable when you run into somebody in the hallway or in the proverbial elevator. Nobody talks in the elevator anymore, but you run into somebody somewhere and you want to give them a small update on something. The what is, hey, we're making progress on this. The so what is why does that person matter? And then the now what is what are you going to do next? And that's a three, like that's a three sentence update yeah. that I believe every senior executive will love because that's exactly the kind of information they're looking for. So thank you. I love the structure. And you've just highlighted one of the many ways in which it can be used. But in I can see it in sale. I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of places. Now, I can also imagine that if I've thought about this, that gives me much more flexibility in the moment. Mm -hmm. Am I right that's about what, that? How does what, that work? Yeah. So when when you have to speak in the moment. You have two fundamental tasks, what to say and how to say it. The structure tells you how you're going to say it so you can focus more of your mental energy on what to say. Think of it this way. If you have a really good recipe that you're going to cook from, then all you have to do is focus on getting the best ingredients and preparing them in the right way. You know how you're going to assemble it. So it makes it easier. It halves your burden of what you have to do. So being agile at using these structures helps you in your communication because you can focus your energy on where it really counts, which is what am I going to put into the structure? Okay. All right. So you talked about a bunch of structures. We'll see how good my memory is. Okay. One is the problem solution. Um, and benefit. Yes, benefit. I, I was knew I was missing there. Some problem yeah. solution benefit. One yeah. is the compare contrast and Resolution, conclusion. I think. Conclusion. Conclusion. BCC, conclusion. Comparison, contrast, conclusion. It helps if I pull my notes out over here. And the <laughs> third one is the what, so what, now what. Correct. Okay. All right. I want to ask you about a fourth one. Yes. Which is every book you're picking up now about communications is talking about story, 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 story. So do you have a structure for a story? Well, so I believe it depends on how you define story. So yep. I, I will answer the question for what I think you mean by story. To me, store, a story is nothing more than a connection of ideas with a beginning, middle, and an end. So I think all of the structures you've just named are story structures. You tell a story about here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the benefit, or here's the what. The, those are stories. Um, a, a good story in the sense that I think you're thinking of it is you need something that hooks people right away. So you need to have a start that engages people. 
I am so tired of meetings and presentations starting with, hi, my name is, and today I'm going to tell you about. That is banal, boring, and just plain ridiculous because you're often in front of a slide that has your name and the title of your story. Do something that engages your audience. I think all meetings and presentations should start like action movies. How do actions movies start? With action. So ask a question, take a poll, give a startling statistic, tell an anecdote. That gets your audience engaged and then introduce who you are and what you're doing. So a good story starts by building curiosity, getting people engaged. You then lay out a premise or some idea. You're taking people on a journey. Often on that journey, there are challenges or things to consider. That brings to some kind of resolution. And then at the end, you remind people of what you have done. So a good story is an active engagement. I'll share something with you. It's not in my new book, but it came up as a result of an an interview I did for the book. I forever, since I was a little boy, have loved Lego. I think Lego is fascinating, not just as a toy itself. And now I use it almost as therapy where I'll actually still build Legos because it requires just enough of effort. So you have to be focused, but not so much that it's frustrating. I'm fascinated by Lego, the company. How do you take such a creative company and actually make it a business? I talked to one of their leads who's in charge of their manuals. I don't know if you've ever seen a Lego manual. Oh, yeah. No words. No words. And yet they can have you build these complex things. So I asked about them. They see those manuals, not just as step-by-step instructions, a list. They actually see them as stories. They build in parts of the building experience that go really easy and and you're excited because you do something really cool and then they build in some that are a little more challenging so you are actually having an emotional experience assembling those legos in other words they are bringing something that is meaningful relevant and emotional to you because you literally could make each step the same number and require the same things done with each step They purposely build in that emotion to make it something that you enjoy doing. And that's what we have to bring into the stories we tell. Great. This reminds me again of another very senior executive who said, I'm never going to let whatever presentation we're doing go or kind of like get very far until in his case, it was put it on the wall like a cartoon um, storyboard would get laid out. So there's panel A, there's panel B, there's panel C, there's panel D, and so on. And see the flow of that. And it, your Lego manuals reminds me of that sense of thinking of your even presentation in that same format. Yeah, okay. that's a great, yeah, yeah, that's a much more applied way. But yes, it's the same idea. It's, it's the, the same, same idea, idea at the yeah, end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And again, what you're describing a story is an emotional hook. I think that's what's interesting. But it also tells people... Here's what I'm where the journey is going to go. Here's probably why this is important to you, the tension, the resolution, and here's the conclusion of it, even though it is in told in a slightly different format. All right. So structure is how I prepare. This is how I prepare to be able to be adaptable, flexible in the moment, to be able to listen and still get through my story and through my message. I think it's also how you prepare. And like if you're going to a senior leadership group, they're inevitably late by a lot. And Uh inevitably your 30 minutes or 45 minutes is down to five or 10. And you've got to figure out how to flex. And this kind of structure presentation allows you to flex. Um, And I just, I think there's no other way around it. 
But let's shift from that as a premise of something we need to do always. And again, recommend the book because I love the six that you have in there and say, so how do I answer a question when I've never really thought about that? Okay. And yes, I know I prepped. Yeah, I try to anticipate questions. They always come out of left field. How, how am I supposed to react in that moment? So if you know the answer, then I think you just insert the answer into a structure that that can help you. If the question is one where you don't know the answer, then I think you admit, I don't know the answer and follow it up immediately with, here's what I'm gonna, going to do to find the answer and I'll get it back to you in whatever time frame you describe. And if you have a hunch or an inkling of what the answer might be, I would say that with that caveat. So I might say, I don't know the answer. I'm going to go ask Joe. I'll get back to you in 24 hours. My hunch is it's this. So if you don't know the answer, I think it's reasonable to say that you don't know. Now, if you're saying I don't know to every question, that's a different issue. But if it's once or twice, I think that's very reasonable. It's very human. And I think it speaks well for you because you're sharing, hey, I know where to go to find answers, which actually is a really good thing for people to see that you know. So it's about if I know the answer, but I just wasn't expecting it, I package it up in using a structure. And if I don't know, then I just say that and I follow up. Yeah. I watch, again, a very senior leader get asked a question in public uh, among, you know, high potential team. And they said, what's the strategy for this particular region that's under his remit? And he said, I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. And I'll get back to you. And Richard, if he didn't get an answer to that, come back, you know, send me an email. Please, would you tell everybody that X, Y, and Z and so on. And he, his credibility with the group went up, not down as a result of saying that. So I agree. You can't say that too many times. All right. So suppose now let's do the small talk. Um, I'm at a dinner event, a client event, a meeting significant other people event. I don't know, a training program. How do you help people think about the small talk issue? Yes. So the first thing I'll say is that small talk needs to be rebranded. A lot of us think it's a, a necessary evil. We don't enjoy doing it. We don't look forward to it. When in fact, small talk does a lot of great things for us. It allows us to connect, to test ideas, to learn new people about people, to meet new people. Uh, it really does a lot. So we have to see small talk as doing big things. When you are going into a small talk situation, and often we know this is going to happen, right? We have an invitation or we know at the end of the conference, there's going to be a cocktail party. So we know often, not always, but we know often when we'll be in these circumstances, think about some things that you might want to discuss so we can prepare in advance. We might have attended a conference and one of the keynotes was just really fascinating. Maybe we could say, hey, that's something I'd like to explore more with some of these people. Did they enjoy it the same way I did? So you can do a little bit of stockpiling in advance. When you show up for small talk, there are a couple rules I would like everybody to think about. Uh, this this rule came from uh, a friend of mine. She's a fascinating person. She is an academic as well as a professional matchmaker. Talk about a fascinating role or, or job she does. Uh, she she gave me this quote that I think is great. It's it's about being interested and not interesting. Many of us think we have to be super interesting. I use the analogy to tennis or volleyball. We just got to throw something interesting over the net and hope it lands and we score. That's the wrong attitude. You want to be interested. I don't know, Wanda, if you remember the game, it's called Hacky Sack, where you've got this little beanbag ball and you kick it. And the whole goal is that everybody involved is kicking it and it never should hit the ground. 
you're all working together for the same goal. I think small talk should be seen as hacky sack and not tennis or volleyball. The whole goal is to put something out there that allows others to keep things going. So it's about asking questions, finding commonality, commenting on things in the environment. When you do that, you demonstrate interest and you set others up for success. So it's how you approach it that I think matters a lot. All right. I love this set others up for success because that means I'm not going to ask them a banal question or a really difficult question because I'm making it hard for them to answer. It means that my answers are not going to be boring because or just run of the mill, hi, I'm Wanda, I do X, because I'm not giving them any hooks to follow up with me at all. So it's finding that right balance. And I guess there's nothing short of practicing this and stockpiling some questions. That's right. That's right. And again, some guiding principles. So there's this other thing that people who study conversation look at, and they look at the type of response that you give, and they characterize two different types of responses supporting versus shifting responses. A supporting response is where I take what you have said and I I encourage you to extend it. And a shifting response is where I shift to something related. So let's imagine you and I are having some small talk and you share with me that you just went on this amazing vacation. A supportive response would be like, oh, tell me more, where did you go? A shifting response would be, oh, I just traveled as well. Now, the goal of a good conversation is not all all supporting responses, because if you do only supporting responses, it looks like you're being evasive, like you don't want to talk about yourself. So the magic number, if you're looking for a magic number, is about two thirds to three quarters of responses being supporting, encouraging others to continue, but the rest being about yourself. Because if all we do is deflect and, and inquire, then people think, well, what's this person hiding? So if you use these principles, along with what you've said, where you're trying to set your person, the the person or people you're talking uh, with up for success, those hooks, as you mentioned, if it's about being interested, not interesting, more support than shifting and finding those hooks, you're going to have a good time in small talk. Okay. All right, Matt, great advice. There's so much more we could talk about. Um, I really strongly recommend the book. Thinking faster, talking smarter. Did I get that right? Yes. Think and the faster, podcast. Talk this smarter. One. Yes. This you made them gerunds. Think fast, <laughs> talk smart. <laughs> Think fast. I'll get it right one day here along the line. All right, Matt, I'm going to give you a fa- unfair question. 30 seconds. What takes you out of your comfort zone? I am taken out of my comfort zone when I am surprised by something that I was not expecting in terms of something intriguing, interesting, delightful, or challenging. So when somebody posits something or or does something in a way I wasn't expecting, I am out of my comfort zone. But here's the trick. I embrace it. I move towards it, not away from it. When somebody does something I don't understand, I move in. When somebody says something I'm curious about, I move in. So When I'm out of my comfort zone, I approach. I do not retreat. I love it. Fabulous answer. Matt, what a great conversation and one we could keep going on forever. Again, my guest is Matt Abrams. Check him out on LinkedIn. Check out the podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart. The book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, or the other book, um, how how to speak successfully when you're on the spot. All right. right. It's been a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace.
on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.